If you have joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, once again, just want to extend a warm welcome to you as well as those who are joining us this morning via live stream. We are glad that you're with us in the presence of the Lord. I especially want to extend a warm welcome to those of you, maybe new college families or students among us this morning. We especially are glad to see you. What a joy it is to have the privilege as a local congregation to host New College Franklin, a Christian classical liberal arts college right here in our facility. They are regathering for classes just beginning actually this week. Had a wonderful convocation and graduation last night, picking up the threads from the end of last school year and carrying them forward into the new year. And a joy to have you friends uh, with us and pray blessings on your year. Um, it is a delight to be in the presence of the Lord on this Lord's Day as we start a brand new series. I'm like a kid in a candy store when I begin a brand new series. I just think, oh, we're about to jump into such riches, and I've been pouring over the Gospel of Mark over the last couple of weeks, uh, thinking together with you about the foundations of the faith. And that's really what Mark is after. He's wanting to tell us about the very essence of what it means to be a Christian and what are the, the very foundations of the claims of the Christian faith. And it's very important in days and times like we live in where there's lots of things crowding into our minds and into our hearts, influencing us from the outside to clear our minds and to get back to the fundamentals of the faith. And I believe Mark helps us do that. In fact, Mark, among all of the gospel writers, are focused on uh, those very realities, uh, teaching us about the now, most basic truths, the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian. As we course through the Gospel of Mark in installments, I pray over the, the, the next few months and, and maybe even all the way through most of 2021, I trust that the Lord will meet us in a rich and deep way in this glorious Gospel. And would ask you to join us as you're reading along in our devotionals that you'll pick up this morning and as you worship at home together that you would pray for the Lord to do a transformative work in the lives of us as a church individually its members, but also us corporately as the body of Christ. In fact, to that very end, I'd like to open up our time this morning just to pray even before we read God's Word and ask for His help and blessing. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come now as we attend to this Word and we ask you to meet us in it, in its reading and then in its exposition, that you would be pleased with that which is spoken and said and that you would take on the wings of the Holy Spirit into the lives of your people, the church. And you would take the seed of this gospel and you would plant it deep. That it would germinate and root and it would ultimately fruit. And it would give glory and spread the fame of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Him alone that we attend to now. It is Him alone that we seek to honor. Come and present Him more believable and beautiful than ever before our mind's eye. That we might give to Him the worship that He deserves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths 
straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now you may be familiar with this, but the early church liked to depict the Gospels, the four evangelists as they referred to them as, by pictures, especially attaching to them certain images, even iconography later in the medieval period. Matthew, for instance, was pictured as a, as a winged man because it focused upon the humanness of Christ and his human nature. Luke was pictured as a winged ox, for Christ was pictured as a strong and sacrificial servant. John was pictured as an eagle in the sky, because John, the most theological of all of the Gospels, soars into the heavenlies, as if the eagle, who was famed to say, could stare the sun in the face with its eyes. But Mark, of all of the Gospel evangelists, was pictured as a lion with wings, A lion because Mark gives to us a picture of Christ with courage. The picture of Christ as king and monarch. We might say even the king of the forest as the lion is known for. But winged because he is resurrected. Because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and has overcome all of his enemies and has become victorious over the grave. I believe in that image of a winged lion, we get for us in some ways a capsule, a small visage, so to speak, of the whole of the message of the Gospel of Mark. Summarized right here as Mark begins his Gospel in verse 1 with that one sentence that says so much that we will spend almost the entirety of our time together today on that one sentence together. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wastes no time, doesn't he? He just jumps right in. There's no story of birth of Jesus like we get in Matthew and Luke. There's no soaring into the heavenlies that this is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us as John does. No, no, no. Mark gets right down to business. He jumps right into the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with merely this introduction and a couple of words of prophecy there in verse 2 and verse 3 from Isaiah. He wants us to know that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, you may read that sentence and think to yourself, okay, okay, I've been in church many years. I, I know that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the big deal? Well, I can tell you that the first century readers of the gospel of Mark, you, they would be scooping their jaw off the ground in reading that opening sentence because this is a staggering claim that Mark is making. He tells us two things about who Jesus is, which is a question that we're going to hold for just a minute in the midst of our message. Who is this Jesus who he wants to tell us gospel about? He wants to tell us good news about. Well, Mark says, I want you to be asking that question the whole of the way through my gospel. Who is Jesus? And the second question he's going to ask us to ask is what does he come to do? What has he come to do? Who is this Jesus and what has he come to do? And Mark is not the kind of writer that sort of sneaks in the answer on the back end. He goes ahead and seeds the answer right up front. He wants you to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. Now when I said Jesus Christ earlier, did you read that like it was his last name? That's how we tend to identify him, isn't it? He's Jesus Christ. But Christ is not a name like Jesus is, given to him by his parents. Christ is a title. It's a title in much the same way you might receive, as it were, a title in your vocation. And I have the privilege, for instance, of marrying a young couple. They will give to me their marriage license. And the state of Tennessee requires for me to sign that license. And when I sign that license, they do not merely want my name. They also want my title. They want to see those three little letters on the front of my name that tell them that I am credentialed to do such a thing as a marriage ceremony. Those three little letters are R-E-V which stands short for reverend. Now I expect all of you to call me reverend from here on out. Of course not. But they want that official title, right? They want to know who it is that's doing this. It says something about my calling. Not just who I am, but what I am to be doing. What it is that I am called to do. The same thing is here in this title of Christ. This is an Old Testament phrase used from cover to cover, as so to speak, in that Old Testament Hebrew text. It means quite literally the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Or, as the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament would put it, and the words that we're probably most familiar with, with regards to, to, to Christ, is the word Messiah. We can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, say in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, as Moses is writing, and he begins to prophesy, and he says, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come in the future who is going to be greater than even me. Now, Moses is the greatest of the patriarchs, leading the greatest moment of redemption in all of Israelite history. And Moses says, there'll be a greater Moses. There'll be a prophet like me, but greater than me, that is going to come. In 2 Samuel 7, when we're told that David, this high watermark of the royalty of Israel, the golden age of the people of God, we're told there in 2 Samuel 7 that there is a son of David that will be even greater than David and whose kingdom will have no end. 
Isaiah tells us that this Messiah, this anointed one, can be known by multiple descriptions like wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Daniel 7 tells us that he comes on majesty, clothed in righteousness, to rule the world with justice. He comes like one who is a son of man. The final book of the Old Testament, Malachi Even in the final chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, we're told this anointed one is a son of righteousness who comes with healing in his wings. Now, as you can tell from that selection of scriptures from Old to New Testament, and it's merely a thumbnail sketch of what could be cited to describe this language of Messiah or anointed one, gives us a picture of a kingly ruler. Someone who comes with justice, whose character is full of righteousness, who's pure through and through, who's come to redeem his people and to lay low their enemies and to spread shalom, peace, over all of the world. That anointed one is who the people of Israel, God's people, have been waiting for in all of the pages of the Old Testament. And we've come there to Malachi, that final book, in that final chapter, And still we're told he's still coming. When Malachi dotted, as it were, the I of his prophecy and crossed the T of his prophecy, it would be 400 years of silence that would come for the people of Israel before any inscripturated word would once again be given revelation from God to his people. And the very first inscripturated gospel word that came to his people is this word in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now some of you may be saying to yourself, are you sure this is the first word? Because Matthew comes before Mark in the gospel. Didn't Matthew's word come first? And it's good in terms of canon, the way that you're thinking, but not in terms of chronology. Mark was actually the very first of the gospel writers. It's very clear that Matthew and Luke, from studying both of those gospels, had access to Mark's gospel in their writing. Mark is actually giving to us eyewitness accounts through the, through the history of Peter's relationship to Jesus. And so Mark is the very first gospel chronologically That is given to us in the scriptures after 400 years of silence. After the longing of hundreds, even thousands of years among the people of Israel. We read, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Their jaws would have to be scooped up off the floor. For Mark is claiming that the one that we've been looking for forever is now here in Christ Jesus. Now, not only is he claiming this, though, he is giving us something more. He's telling us something even more about who this Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. But he is also the Son of God. Now, that language of the Son of God is used a variety of ways in the Scriptures. And it's sometimes surprising to us to know that. We so quickly, especially if we've grown up in the church, we're used to just referring to Jesus as the Son of God. We'll get actually to His baptism uh, next week in our reading of the text. And we'll talk a little bit more 
about that voice from heaven that declares that Jesus is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just coming attractions in the days ahead. But as you look at the Old Testament, the word son of God or sons of God is often applied to the people of Israel as a whole. The prophets are accustomed to doing this constantly. They will look, as it were, at the nation of the people of Israel and will say, you are a son of God, as if to describe their privileged relationship with God. That they are his people. They are in the position of son. Sometimes to be in the position of son is not merely to make a biological note that so-and-so is from so-and-so. It's a, it's, a, it's a position or status that has been given to you. They are in a privileged and blessed status to be the inheritors of God's promises like a firstborn son. And as he looked over the people of Israel, he would say to them, you are my son. In a few places in the Old Testament, we hear the language of the Son of God actually applied to angelic beings. We see that, for instance, in Genesis chapter 6, maybe at your leisure this afternoon. You can go back to that strange passage of the Nephilim and many other uh, strange things there in Genesis 6, and you'll see that the language of the sons of God is actually referred to angelic beings. Those closest around the throne, radiating reflective of the character of God. It's also mentioned in the book of Job. That the sons of God, the angels, the angelic host, that old, old writing of Job, reflecting that old tradition, that they are the character of God and they are as sons of God. Now those who are reading the Gospel of Mark, maybe most Hellenistic Greco-Roman readers potentially, I think that's a large portion Mark's goal in writing uh, this gospel is to spread the news of Jesus, why it's short and, and brief, and it's meant to hit Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile audiences, but largely Hellenistic references that we get in the gospel of Mark as he's writing to these Romans, and they hear the language of the Son of God. They probably don't think Genesis 6 or Job. They, they probably don't think of Israel as a nation. They probably think of the emperor. Do you know the emperor during the day of the first century in the Roman Empire would very often take to himself the title, the Son of God, or a Son of God? There was a thriving religious community in the first century known as the occult of the emperor. The emperor was viewed as a human or visible representation of the gods, the pantheon. They would be the son of Zeus, so to speak. It would be likely that those hearers or readers of the Gospel of Mark would have these sort of things going off in their minds when they hear the language of the Son of, of God. And we must ask ourselves the question, is Mark catering to this audience and saying, listen, you need to understand Jesus is a lot like the emperor of Rome. Or he's a lot like an angelic being. Or he's, he's something like a really good Israelite. Or is Mark saying more than that? Well, thankfully, Mark doesn't leave anything to mystery. You see, those verses 2 and 3, this prophecy from Isaiah, coming from Isaiah 40, makes it very plain that he is talking about none other than the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son of God. How do we know that? Well, look at these words from Isaiah there in verses 2 and 3. Behold, I will send my messenger. Now, this messenger 
As you'll see contextually, we'll look at this a little more next week, is John the Baptist. He's also described, as you see here, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is the messenger. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of, notice, the Lord. The Lord. Here's who he's preparing the way for. The one who later he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's so much higher and so much more glorious than I am. This is who is preparing the way for the Lord. And we think to ourselves, well, okay, the Lord is used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament as well. You remember that Sarah called Abraham Lord. Sometimes my father would like to remind my mother of that fact that Abraham would sometimes hear from his wife, Lord Abraham. Yes, all in good humor, of course. But when you look at Isaiah 40, and you look at the language of the Hebrew, you, you come to realize that this is not a colloquial way to give respect to the one who may be an authority over you. The word in Isaiah 40 for Lord is none other than the covenant name of God himself. It is Yahweh. This voice crying in the wilderness... This messenger from God, John the Baptist, has come to prepare the way for God. For God. That, that God who brought you out of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, that God who was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, who rained down manna from heaven and gave you water from a rock, that God who brought you into the land of Canaan and made you victorious over the Canaanites and who has sustained you throughout all of His covenant promises with His righteous right hand. That God who is the Shekinah glory who came down and dwelt within the tabernacle and later in the temple. That God has now come to you in human form and His name is Jesus. That's what Mark is saying. If you begin to connect the realities of what Mark is describing here in the very opening verse of this gospel, you begin to understand why this is good news. It's good news because this one who is the Messiah, who's come to deliver his people, who's come to rescue them from all of their enemies, to rule with justice and with righteousness and to spread shalom and peace over all of the world. This is his mission. He is the Christ. He also has the power to execute that mission. There's nothing worse than someone in a position of authority who has no ability to execute their authority in that position. There's nothing worse, isn't it? You've worked for a bad boss, right? Jesus is not such a one. He has been one who's called to the job description of anointed one. To redeem and rescue his people. But he is one who has the power of Yahweh. He is God himself. There is nothing that can stay his hand. Mark wants us to know from the very beginning, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has come to do. And this is why, my friends, it is good news for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, a turning point in the Gospel of Mark is going to be Mark chapter 8. 
It's smack dab in the middle of the book. Mark chapter 8 is right in the middle. Mark, there's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. You can, you can read it in a sitting. It's really a quick read. But right there in Mark chapter 8, there's a turning point. In fact, almost a, a third, well, over a third of the Gospel of Mark is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. This is why we can never refer to the Gospels as a biography. If they're, if they're biographies, they're crummy biographies. Because they, they hardly tell us anything about one's early life. Or entertain details and specifics. They tell us about a snapshot of who this mission and ministry is. Who this person is for the purposes of sharing the gospel. That's the purpose of it. And Mark here at the turning point in the gospel in chapter 8. It's Jesus who comes to his disciples and he asks them a question. Listen, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you are... You're John the Baptist. Well, we know clearly he's not John the Baptist because John the Baptist is to prepare the way of the Lord. Mark makes that very clear. So it's not that. Some say you're Elijah. It's a good guess because John the Baptist is a lot like Elijah, which we'll talk about next week together. Some say you're a prophet. Well, he is prophetic. He's like uh, Moses, that great prophet of old. There's a lot to say about Jesus' ministry that's prophetic, but none of those will cut it. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. Thanks for telling me about... <laughs> What the world thinks and others are saying about me, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up, as he always does, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And what does, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know what this means? Uh, this means you can encounter Jesus in the flesh in the first century. You can encounter facts about Jesus. You, you, can, you can read his gospels. You can, you can pass Bible trivia quizzes. But unless the Father reveals him to you, you will never know Jesus. In the recognition of that as we enter into the gospel of Mark, part of the humility that God is calling us into as his people in the reading of the gospel of Mark is to recognize that we need God to show us Jesus by faith. We need the Holy Spirit to come and awaken us and illumine our minds to clear from us the things that have occupied us and consumed us and begin to give us, as I prayed at the beginning, a more beautiful and believable vision about who Jesus is and to follow him. That's why we've entitled this series, Follow Me, because well, the commitment of, of Mark in his writing is not merely to make Christians. That's what we like to talk about. If you look in the scriptures, you rarely actually see the word Christian utilized. Only a couple times do you ever see the word Christian. You know what word the Bible uses most frequently and preferably about one who is titled a Christian? Disciple. It's a follower. One who doesn't just merely profess with their lips, but gives themselves over in life to whole and complete devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Mark is calling us to. Listen, friends, we will never see Jesus. We will never follow Jesus unless the Father in heaven reveals him to us. Maybe now in this room, your vision of who Jesus is has become dull. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're walking with Him. There's no egregious um, 
anathema or blaspheming that's happening in your life or you're leaving the faith behind or you're unrepentant in your wickedness and sin. Oh, yes, you're sinning. Oh, yes, you're stumbling. But I pray forward in the Christian life as we stumble. But maybe Jesus has ceased to be the apple of your eye, the affection of your heart, the strength of your will, the occupying of your mind. Maybe lesser things have become more treasured to you than the treasure that is Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Your prayer and my prayer is that the Father in heaven would reveal this to us, that we have all that we have in the treasure of Jesus Christ, and we are to fix our eyes there, set our eyes on things above where Christ is, Paul writes. Mark is calling us there. Oh, to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And this, according to Mark, is good news. That's what that word gospel means. Good news. It's the Greek word evangel. From where we get the word evangelism. Sharing the gospel. Now, it's good that we are starting this book remembering that there is good news. Because, friends, it's hard to find good news these days. It's very difficult to find good news. And maybe you got a chuckle and maybe some encouragement over John Krasinski's uh, little funny Some Good News YouTube episodes that he started back in March in the middle of the pandemic. If you haven't seen it, you could Google it, Some Good News YouTube. It'll pop up. It's wonderful. Part of what John noted was the fact that he couldn't find any good news anywhere, and so he asked people to share good news with him, and then he began to promote it, and then he began to talk about it in a very funny and and tongue-in-the-cheek sort of way. And he began talking about COVID-19 and those doctors and nurses who are serving us so faithfully, heroically, putting their own lives at risk. He began to show pictures of how Spain and New York and other places were rejoicing and giving thanks for our medical personnel who are giving their lives to caring for us. And it was heartening, it was encouraging to be able to see that there is another side to the human story. That we are, yes, broken and there is darkness and sin, but there is still the image of God reflected in in, in people And the recognition that there is surprising beauty and good news that sometimes shows up in the darkest of places. As Mark writes to us, he's not just giving us an episode of some good news. He's, well, he's giving us the good news. He's not just telling us stories about heroic healthcare professionals who are seeking to preserve the physical lives of those battling COVID-19. He's telling us, about the great physician. He's telling us about the Lord Himself who has come not merely to preserve our lives physically, but has come to preserve us body and soul eternally. Friends, let's have a little dose of realism for just a second. As important as it is, and it is critically important, it upholds the commandments of God that we care for the physical well-being of one another. How critical that is. It upholds the commandments, even in the commandments that say, Thou shalt not murder. The implication is, Thou shalt promote life in every way, in the flourishing of one's neighbor, 
to the left and to the right and wherever it is that you would find them. But even in the promotion of all of the well-being and the health physically of every single one of us, there will come a day, even for those patients who recover from COVID-19 by God's grace, there will come a day where they will close their eyes and not recover here. And that is true for every single one of us in this room. And it is to that deeper reality that Mark speaks. Do you want to love your neighbor? Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eternity is at stake. He's come to share with us the good news. Now when we hear it's good news, I want you to hear two things. I want you to hear that it is something that has happened. That's what news is. Now listen, we live in the era of fake news, which is an oxymoron. Because news is something that happened by definition. It's a historical event that's being reported. So fake news, technically, is impossible. Because the definition of news is something happening. All right? You're tracking with me, right? Gospel is good news. It's a happening. It's a happening. That's what he's come to, to share with us. He's come to share with us news. I want you to see why that's so important. In the first century, in the ancient Near East and in the Roman context, all religions were, well, they weren't built on news. They weren't built on happenings. They were built on rules. They were built on instruction. They were built on pathways to enlightenment. They were built on ways to appease God. What ways to climb the mountain, to have nirvana with God. These were the religions of the day. They were instructions, they were guidance, they were about what you should do. When Mark says, I've come to tell you about the claims of a new and living faith, a Christian faith, and I want you to know the foundations of this faith are not about something for you to do. The foundations of this faith is about something that has already been done. It's news. It's news. I have come to announce to you, to herald to you, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That He has died on the cross for your sins. And He has been victorious over the grave in the resurrection. That He has been welcomed back into the heavenlies By his Father and he sits at his right hand even now making intercession for all of those who would trust in him. I've come to declare to you good news. Trust in Christ. That's what Mark is doing. Now that is fundamentally different from every other religion in the world. If we're looking at the pillars of Islam or we're looking at the eight steps in Buddhism or whatever it is that we're looking at, you're looking at a grid or a method, or a means by which you climb the ladder to God. And Christianity at its very core and at its very foundation is about how God came down the ladder to you. He came down the ladder to you. In love, God gave His only Son to us. That's what it is about. Now what that means is as we begin the Gospel of Mark, and I think this is so important. 
that you understand that as Mark is speaking to us, he wants you to come with a spirit of exhale. He wants you to come with a spirit of peace. Jesus has come. He has saved you. He's redeemed you. There's nothing more for you to do. He has done it all. Trust in Him. Let me tell you more about Him. Let me tell you about His gospel. Let me tell you about His good news for you. Friends, as we approach the gospel of Mark, we need God to grant to us a spiritual exhale. A peacefulness where we are a people who just know that we are the beloved of God. And we do not look at God and we say to ourselves, does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he love me? Wait, how did I do today? Did I, did I do okay today? Did, oh, oh I, I didn't read my Bible. So he hates me now. I better read my Bible so he'll love me. Or I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I, I sinned. I looked at that thing. I, I, and and we're, we're eating up and we're like, where's the joy of Christianity? We're burdened. We're like, we're like way down. And you know what we're doing? Seven pillars. Eight steps to enlightenment. We're treating the Christianity like it's any old religion. And Mark wants you to know the very foundation of the Christian faith is where you have to stand the whole time you walk in the Christian faith. And that is on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We live by the done, not the do. We live by the done. That's what we live by. Now, as we go along, there's going to be stuff to do. There's always stuff to do. It's good stuff. But the good stuff to do is always on the foundation of the done. Always on the foundation of the done. Don't ever forget that. Always on the foundation of the done. As we enter into the gospel of Mark, let's freshly hear the gospel and ask the Lord to renew our hearts in its life. Because Jesus has come that you might have life. And that you might have it abundantly. My peace, he says, I give to you. Exhale. Exhale. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would send the reality of this gospel in deeper ways into our hearts and life right now. More of us captured by more of you and the power of the gospel having increasing sway over every part of who we are. Lord, today, let the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, be ours now and forever. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.